Hello from Gilbert and Tobin. I'm Moya Dodd. And I'm Matt Rubenstein, and this is The Competitive Edge, what you need to know about competition law in Australia and around the latent diffusion model. Today, Peter Waters joins us to talk about AI, artificial intelligence. Are regulators up to the task of regulating it, or even using it in their own jobs? And are they the right ones to be making policy about it? And so that's why business needs to embrace not a tight regulatory world, not one that's highly prescriptive, but one in where there is some level of sort of guidance and some level of flexibility to change as things evolve. Because after all, the whole benefit of AI is that it learns as it goes. So we've got to kind of learn as we go as well in the regulatory structure that we build around AI. But first, Matt, why did they call that movie AI Artificial Intelligence? That's like a redundant tautology, isn't it? A bit. So this is the 2001 science fiction film, first developed by Stanley Kubrick and eventually handed over to Steven Spielberg. The story goes that it was going to just be called AI, but too many people were reading that as A1, which is a popular brand of steak sauce, apparently, in the US. I don't know if that's true. Well, even now, there seem to be an awful lot of headlines about this guy named Al depending on the font they use, Al can predict death. Al might destroy humanity. That's some A1 AI, Al, you might say, in a headline. AI, AI, oh. Well, what's been happening around the grounds? Well, the ink has barely dried on the government's more competition, better prices bill, which will increase penalties and ban unfair contract terms. But Assistant Minister for Competition, Dr Andrew Lee, is already calling for a new wave of competition policy reforms, modelled on the changes that came out of the Hilmer Review back in 1993. So those changes got rid of a lot of statutory monopolies, introduced the national access regime and paved the way for the national energy markets. That's right. And the Productivity Commission estimated that those reforms had added 2.5% to Australia's GDP, which these days would be worth about $50 billion a year. But there's always been a feeling that there was still some work to be done in that area. And didn't they finally get rid of the Western Australian Potato Marketing Corporation? They did. It took until 2016, but they've done it. But there are still a few industries like the pharmacies that are protected from competition. The ACCC is concerned that the national access regime hasn't gone far enough, as, as Jeff Peterson told us last time. Mm-hmm. And Dr. Lee has identified some other potential handbrakes in the economy. Problematic privatisations, restrictive zoning laws that impede new startups, state housing taxes that make it expensive for people to move to take up a better job, occupational licensing rules that make it harder for startups and job switches, energy markets that don't work as well as they should. If competition policy could lay this groundwork for another 1990s type productivity surge, the result would be more innovation and more startups, more opportunities for workers and more choice for consumers, better use of technology and household budgets that stretch a little further. Didn't we just have a root and branch review into competition policy? It feels like it, doesn't it? Uh, The final report of the Harper Review came out in 2015. It was a very wide-ranging report, but apart from the changes to the competition law that we've talked about before, not many of its recommendations have actually been implemented yet. Some of them were just a bit ahead of their time, though, weren't they? I mean, Harper recommended charging for road use based on how far you drove, and everyone got up in arms about it. Yeah, that one got the most submissions by far, though they were all pretty much identical ones, saying that Section 92 of the Constitution doesn't allow any road tolls at all, and the submitters did not give consent to that change. Mm, That sounds like another Michael Detmold argument with a bit of sovereign citizenship thrown in. Yeah, I mean, it's great that so many people are reading the Constitution, but they should read more Michael Detmold as well. And now a lot of states seem to be introducing distance-based road user charges for electric vehicles because they don't pay the fuel excise, which goes to build and maintain the roads. So you think that'll apply to everyone sooner or later? 
You would think so. And a lot of these ideas do take hold eventually in one way or another. But to kick things along, Dr. Lee is also suggesting that the Commonwealth could make competition payments for states and territories for improving productivity and efficiency in their jurisdictions, which made a big difference to the Hilmer reforms and was also one of the other Harper recommendations that hasn't come to anything yet. So are we talking about a new review? It's not clear whether we'd need one. A lot of these issues have been canvassed before, but that hasn't often got in the way of having a new review. And if we did, you know, who would run it? I mean, where do we go after Hilmer and Harper? There's plenty of options. It could be a hunter or a hawker. It could be either of the homers or any of the healers or MC Hammer or Horatio Hornblower or even the Hamburglar. Oh, goodness. Well, I'm sure it'll be a humdinger. It could be the hipster review. Oh, well, yes. What else is going on? Well, ACCC Chair Gina Cascott-Leap has made her first appearance before the House Economics Committee, along with senior ACCC managers. And that was supposedly to talk about the ACCC's 2021 annual report, but that was nearly a year ago now. That's right. And the new annual report is just around the corner now. So this was really a chance for the committee to talk to the ACCC about anything that's of interest to them or to their constituents. That's sounding like petrol prices to me. Yeah. And this time there was a focus on the return of the full petrol excise and how the retailers are dealing with that as well as energy prices more generally, especially gas, of course. But the committee also asked where the ACCC's proposals for merger reform are up to, and the chair said this. We are continuing our work in relation to proposed reforms that we will, in coming months, bring to government. The areas that we are very conscious of and that I have seen, one of the areas I've seen by coming within to the ACCC, is that because we have an informal regime, the outcome is that there can be strategic behaviour to either not report at all or report late and to constrain the ACCC in its capacity to do its job. And in global transactions where most jurisdictions do have a mandatory regime, we can certainly find that on reporting may be late or notification to us late, which then makes it difficult for us in the context of the regime. So it's sounding like the ACCC's main concern at the moment is with the procedural part of the regime, wanting mandatory notification and I suppose the power to put an acquisition on hold until the ACCC has made its decision. We haven't heard so much about changing the merger test or how likely a likely effect has to be. No, and that's consistent with what the chair's been saying in other places, like the Law Council workshop earlier in October. She did also mention the challenges of digital platforms buying each other, as well as incremental acquisitions uh, where markets are already concentrated. And I guess those could be either procedural or substantive questions, couldn't they, or both? Right. And the chair told the committee that that issue of increasing existing market power would go to the way they set the notification thresholds. So the ACCC would have a close look at those transactions, but it's not clear whether they'd want any changes to the merger test for those situations as well. Well, sounds like we won't have to wait much longer to find out. What else has been happening? Well, last year we reported that the ACCC had taken my roof guy to court for a bid rigging arrangement involving two slate roofing projects. I do remember that, and I'm pretty sure we used up all the roofing jokes back then. Well, there's luckily another whole vocabulary for slate roofing in particular that we haven't even touched on yet. You've got your small duchesses and scant bachelors, heads and shoulders, plug and feathers, flaunching and torching, sarking and thacking. You've even got your crapping iron. Maybe you do. I'm sorry I asked. And what's that got to do with the case anyway? Well, the case was settled. Uh, This was always a civil case, not a criminal one. And First Class Slate has now agreed to pay $280,000 and its director another $60,000. 
while Mr. Shingles has agreed to pay $65,000 and its director is going to pay $15,000. That's quite a difference between the defendants. What explains that? First class agreed that it was the ringleader, so it came up with a big rigging plan uh-huh. and it ended up with the most valuable tender, which was for the roof of the university college, worth about a million dollars. In return, Mr. Shingles just got to do the residential roofing project, which was probably worth a fair bit less. Even though it was in Bellevue Hill? Yeah, even then, I think. Um, The court emphasised once again that deterrence was the primary objective of the penalties, and it took everyone's personal circumstances into account, giving them up to six years to pay their penalties in instalments. And they had to also send a message to all members of the New South Wales Roofing Industry Association saying, don't do what we did, rigging bids for roofing projects is illegal, exclamation mark. And that's a court-ordered exclamation mark there. Along with the words, learn from our mistakes and make sure you don't engage in cartel conduct. Yeah, so as well as civil penalties and declarations, there's a bit of a public mea culpa involved too, which I guess all goes to the idea of deterrence. Mm, They're lucky they didn't get plugged and feathered. They are. Um, A third roofer, MLR Slate Roofing, was also involved in those tenders, but it isn't party to any of the proceedings. So are we supposed to think there's a reasonable chance they were the immunity applicant here and that's how the ACCC found out about it? Yeah, that, that seems like the inference. The ACCC chair told the Law Council that they've developed a new cartel screening tool that uses data analytics to identify bid rigging conduct, but it looks like they've solved this one the old-fashioned way. Hmm. And that reminds me, Maya, you spoke with CNR consultant and Hall of Famer Peter Waters on the regulation of AI and using AI for regulation, including the detection of cartels. Yeah, that's right. Peter's actually one of the smartest people I've ever worked with. You ever wonder whether it's all natural or whether he might possibly have had a bit of assistance? Oh, like performance enhancing AI? No, I think he's just naturally brilliant, actually, and he helped me learn to stop worrying and love artificial intelligence. Let's take a listen. So today, Peter, we want to dip our toe into the choppy waters of AI. Give us a bit of a landscape of what you see developing in the technology world of AI. Well, from a regulatory perspective, I think regulators have really got two key challenges, and they're really different sides of the same coin. There is how do we regulate AI, on which most of the focus to date has been. And then on the other side of the coin is how do we use AI for regulation? How do we improve our regulatory processes by using AI as a tool? But first, tell me a bit about what is happening in the world of AI. I mean, what should I be thinking about? Is this some chip that's going to get put in my wrist instead of having a phone? Or is this something that's going to read my mind and play the music I want before I even know what I want to play? Or send an email to someone before I'm ready to send it, saying exactly what I think of them? Like, where are we going with this? Well, in a sense, the question of where are we going presupposes that it's some little time off, whereas in fact, much of the change is right here now. And most of it is inspiring. So in neurotechnology, for example, will allow the more effective use of artificial limbs because people have trouble sort of adapting to controlling from their brain the artificial limb. But actually, if you use brain implants and an AI-enabled limb, then they can actually mimic much better how they control their remaining human limb. This recent report from the UK Alan Turing Institute actually pointed out that Really, regulators in the nooks and cranny of the UK regulatory system are now facing AI challenges. For example, the UK Farriers Council, which is a quaint little organisation that deals with people who shoe and look after the feet of horses, and it's faced with AI because, of course, like in humans, AI is being used to diagnose and predict how thoroughbred horses are responding to treatment or what treatment they may use. 
So it's kind of like Dr. Doolittle. He, it's something that's able to tell you what the horse is thinking, yes. even though the horse can't tell you. Well, not so much what it is thinking, but predict based on the sort of data of all horses in the UK, where this horse is going in relation to the care of its feet. So if it can happen in that little corner of the regulatory system, it's happening everywhere. Well, turning now to that first side of the coin, what are the issues around the regulation of AI that stand out to you? Well, I think the Alan Turing Institute in the UK put it well. They said that the problem is that regulators face the possibilities of AI being used in almost a limitless way. They have limited resources and skills, and they have to oversee basically a vast landscape of individual use cases. While most of our attention about AI has been focused on big mainstream regulators like the ACCC and ASIC, now AI is reaching into every corner of regulation land. Every regulator now faces the challenge, and it's immediate. The second problem is that AI is not built in nice sort of sectoral boundaries. You know, AI is a platform that can process information for insurance purposes, or the same platform can predict lung cancer. And so you've got the problem that the same platform, the same provider is actually across multiple regulators. The third problem is that regulators don't actually, and in fact, all of us don't actually have a common language to even talk about AI and what it does and its risks. You know, we've got some high level concepts like explicability, which nobody seems like they can really explain what it means, but not the sort of common set of language and tools that regulators can actually try and identify and scale the risk together in a consistent way. And then also because they're focused very much in their own field of expertise, They might give AI a tick, but they might miss a more systemic problem with the AI across the whole range of its functions. Well, sometimes you don't see what's happened until it's happened. No, that's a problem as well, because most of our regulators are built to be ex-post compliance enforcement regulators. Yeah, and they they get criticised a lot for ex-ante regulation because people say, well, why are you stopping this before it's even happened? Yes, but but I think this is a fundamental shift actually from you know, our old regulatory philosophy of sort of let it happen until you can show that you need to intervene, that sort of old neoliberal view of the world. I think the very clear view that's now emerging is that AI, both to protect us as consumers, but also to provide the certainty to unlock the innovation of AI, needs more upfront anticipatory regulation or guidance that sort of says, look, this is where the problems might be in the future and these are the sort of guardrails that we need. Now, that's a very different mindset for a regulator which is used to being an ex-post compliance enforcement regulator. In fact, some may say that it's quite difficult to actually do those two things together or it's difficult for stakeholders to trust in the anticipatory regulatory phase talking to you and speaking openly about their views of where the industry will go, knowing that they can turn around and put their enforcement hat on in a couple of years' time and whack you with $100 million fines. So there's a real fundamental question about whether regulators, as we built them for the past, are actually the right ones to do the anticipatory regulation that is needed for AI. That's certainly a tension there. I mean, usually we've heard the arguments that say, well, to innovate, we need the regulators to get out of the way. Instead, you're saying that there might even be a shift in industry thinking that says this thing is so big and untamed 
that we want some guardrails so we know where we can safely run and explore the creation of value. It's almost like we're saying we, we want some regulation to help us. That You don't hear that plea very often. No, but I think you will hear it more from business. And the trite answer, but it is also the true answer, that because AI necessarily involves training the AI and using the AI on vast data pools that aggregate data from individual companies, consumer trust is fundamental to let all that happen. In the old neoliberal world, the business activity was contained within the individual corporate entity. And the data was collected by the individual corporation to supply its own services. And usually, in fact, the laws of confidentiality, intellectual property, all those things bound around the corporate entity boundary to tie everything inside the company. You know, sharing was actually a loss of value. The world has turned upside down. Now, to make AI work and to also realise greater value, you've got to work with other parties The sort of idea of a single corporation delivering a single product of its own is fading and AI needs to be trained on large pools of data that are brought in from multiple sources to improve its reliability, reduce biases, all those sort of things. Now, sharing is the way business has to be conducted. And if you want to be able to do that in a way that is going to be effective and not end up with trouble down the road, you need trust. And trust is both way that your company acts, but it's also the sort of anticipatory framework around which this new business model is occurring. And so that's why business needs to embrace not a tight regulatory world, not one that's highly prescriptive, but one in where there is some level of sort of guidance and some level of flexibility to change as things evolve. Because after all, the whole benefit of AI is that it learns as it goes. So we've got to kind of learn as we go as well in the regulatory structure that we build around AI. So what if there's a robot that doesn't keep the rules or it chooses not to keep the rules? How do we enforce that? If AI kind of grows bigger than us and is making choices for us that we may not even be able to follow or understand, I mean, that sounds kind of a bit terrifying, doesn't it? It does sound terrifying, but in some ways, Moya, that's part of the mindset of coming to this as a lawyer or coming to this as an ex-post regulator. You kind of look for what goes wrong. You apply your sceptical brain. You've watched too many AI sci-fi movies. You know, AI is now able to address some mental health issues or correct or delay the onset of diseases. That's just one example. Innovation is the language we should use about AI. Now, when I was growing up, my learning was that governments make policy, regulators implement. That's not happening. We are seeing regulators make policy about AI in the absence of government policy. And that's not to say that they're doing it in a wrong-headed or disastrous way, but inevitably they bring a lens to it that is a bit like the lens you just brought. We should all be frightened or we should all be fearful or, or the measures should initially be protective rather than there's innovation happening here. And the recent Productivity Commission digital report said that economies that are much smaller than us like Finland and those sort of places, they have four or five times the use of sophisticated data analytics tools and AI than we do. Now, in some ways, we lead the world in AI regulation, but it's largely about restraint and compliance. So we're better at stopping things happening than making them. Well, we have to stop things happening, but that's not the front foot that we should lead with. You know, there is something missing in this country, as Daniel Wood said, 
What's missing is the scaffolding of policy and regulation to actually drive digital transformation in this country. We kind of have a a nay culture about AI and not an innovation culture about AI. But that's also about trust because if I hear you say, look, I can put a chip in your brain that's going to adjust your mental health and, you know, maybe you could put a chip in my brain that gives me the football intelligence of Lionel Messi. That would be great. I would love that. But I also might sit here and wonder, well, maybe you can put a chip in a brain that will destroy my mental health or make me vote for someone I don't want to vote for. Yeah, and there are complex issues like Australia's own Dr McKay from the Sydney Criminology Institute has just written really a world-leading paper on neurotechnology. And there are some frightening things in there. There are some also great benefits that it has. And then in the middle, there are also some more nuanced cases. So there's one case where a brain implant really assisted somebody lift their depression But as they then moved on in age, so much so that their family didn't even really recognise their new personality. So when the time came to make a decision about whether that person should be institutionalised, should it be the transformed person, by reason of the AI implant, that makes that decision? Or should they switch off the AI implant and the so-called original person makes the decision? They are really complicated issues. We need a bigger scaffolding with both policy and regulators in it. That's missing. Talk to me about the regulator part of it for a minute. What would make a regulator fit for an AI world? Well, the Turing report basically said that there were three things that are needed. There needs to be innovation values fit, needs to be innovation needs fit, and needs to be innovation knowledge fit. It's a culture, a regulatory culture that's centred in recognising the innovation of AI. First, it would be naive for a regulator to think that it could oversee digital transformation in a sector of the economy and not be digitally disrupted itself. You know, this is not a case of old wine in new bottles. You really have to fundamentally rethink many of the theories of regulation from the ground up. So very simple example. Stanford University has recently done a study of how the US FDA has approved 130 AI medical apps over the last five years. And of course, you know, the FDA's processes are world-beating, but they were developed for a world in which you would invent a drug or you would build a medical product, you would test it, and then you would release it to the general medical population and on to the general public. Now, there's a bit of a problem with that when you apply it to AI, because AI learns. So you can't just test it in the lab or test it in a live environment in a couple of hospitals and then let it out into the world because it will learn in ways that you never saw when you actually did the initial testing. So that's problem number one. Problem number two is that, of course, the AI is not functioning by itself. It functions as a diagnostic or inference tool for the medical practitioner. And so you've got to understand as much about what the AI is thinking as you do about what the human who's using it is thinking. And then the third thing, of course, is the well-known problem of AI is particularly susceptible to the junk-in, junk-out problem. And their analysis, for example, of a um, tool that was being used to detect susceptibility to lung cancer found that the outcomes were wildly different between three leading US hospitals. So they differed each from one to the other. And secondly, more concerningly, they better diagnosed risk amongst white people than black people. And so the FDA held a seminar last year where they basically said, okay, we acknowledge that we have to rebuild this whole thing from the ground up about how we test for AI. 
So that therefore you need an innovation values fitness as a regulator. The second thing is pretty much the obvious one that you need innovation knowledge. In other words, you need people in your organization or that you can draw on that's going to help you understand AI. And of course, that's a real challenge for like, you can't get programmers in the private sector. Like where's the Farrier Council of the UK going to get, you know, somebody skilled in AI with horses? Like it's a real challenge. And that highlights what you just raised about the continuing learning of AI. You've got to kind of be able to follow what your robot's up to because it's going to grow up, move out, buy its own car and drive off. Exactly. Automatically self-drive off. So the third thing is that you need to be innovation needs fit. And this was probably the most interesting aspect of the Alan Ching Institute. While it was only a pilot study, the regulatory staff who responded were, in my words, not theirs, scathing about the senior executives in regulators. They expressed a deep concern that their regulator was not, didn't have what they called absorbive capacity. It, it couldn't understand and tackle AI and that that came from the top. Especially if you come, as I said before, with a compliance mindset, if you're not tactile with the technology, there's a higher risk, you'll miss the innovation. And then the second aspect of that, this sort of innovation needs fit, is that you've got to walk the talk. So if you're going to regulate AI, then you need to use AI in regulation, the second side of the coin that I said at the beginning. And there have been some really good examples of this. The Danish regulator has, for example, developed AI that can scan across all tenders responses to government and can actually try and detect whether there are instances of collusion. The CMA, the UK competition regulator, also has been pretty innovative. They've got a special unit and they've built a tool which will scan social media and websites to try and identify misleading and deceptive advertising. And then other regulators in the UK use AI to scan social media to see if they can find restaurants that would appear to be unhygienic or from which people are complaining about food problem. But the point more is that if you're using AI for regulation, you're learning what its innovation possibilities are. You've got some credibility. You're walking the talk. You've talked about what makes a regulator fit for AI. Talk to us a little bit about the other side, the scaffolding. You've used that word a few times. What do you mean by the scaffolding of policy? And how should we be making policy about this? Is this something that governments should be getting back to, or is it best to leave it to the regulators to kind of negotiate a path forward with business and industry and scientists? What's the role of government in all of this? Because AI is about how we want to shape our society and it's got all those ethical and moral issues in it that you mentioned, they are essentially policy, if not political issues. So why should a so-called independent regulator be making those sort of enormous decisions outside the sort of direct political process on our behalf? While I've couched it in terms of criticism of ex-post regulators, of course, they've been handed that or the field has been left vacant by the politicians. And so they've had to make, you know, somebody's had to do it. And that's because these issues are sort of too hot to handle, aren't they? Well, Is that, is that part of it? Part of it's they're that. They're difficult issues and they're, they're not short-term ones to solve No, no, either. they're not short-term. And, and, of course, the political process is not very good at doing that. But going back to that survey from the Alan Turing Institute, the regulatory staff that they spoke to said, we need something more than a talk shop. We actually need something that is going to force regulators to work with each other. And we need something that is going to resource all regulators, large, small, and and medium-sized in dealing with AI. I think a better model actually recently came out of the ANU Tech Policy Design Centre, 
And when you look at it, you think, oh my God, that's a real Heath Robinson machine of complexity. But when you unpack the individual elements, I can see why they've got there. So top of their tree is actually a cabinet level committee of government. And that recognises that AI is essentially about policy. And governments need to take responsibility. And governments need to take responsibility at the highest level. Then below that is a sort of board that is composed of both regulators and the civil servants who work in departments that are focused on AI. And they call that the Tech Policy and Regulator Coordination Council. Yes, the idea is that that then ensures that both the regulatory wing and the sort of policy-making wing can talk to each other. But then below that, there's a separate committee. There's just the bureaucrats amongst themselves, the policymakers amongst themselves to coordinate the matters that are policy. And then there's a separate board of the regulators so that each can talk in their own forum about the things that rightly belong to them. And then below that is another body, which is basically the industry stakeholders, both the, the expert acad- forum, they the call expert that one. forum, to provide advice to the three bodies above it. And then to drive this Heath Robinson machine, there is actually a full-time executive that you know does the coordination, but also has the expertise in it that can be used by the regulators. And that's essentially a secretariat. Yes, but it's also expertise and not just, you know, doing the secretariat stuff. And in fact, to that extent, it's very similar to the model that the French set up. The French government has set up a specialist institute of AI that services all of the regulators in the French Republic. The ANU proposal from the Tech Policy Design Centre is for tech regulators more broadly, not just AI, right? It is for digital transformation, of, of which, which is the biggest part is going to be AI, absolutely. Well, it's interesting because that report found that, and you love this quote, Peter, nascent tech policy and regulatory mechanisms are producing lacklustre regulatory outcomes to the detriment of Australians. And it found that there was a strong appetite to do better. Exactly. And that's why much smaller economies have four to five times the usage of advanced AI and data analytics than we do. And in the end, it probably all comes down to political leadership, political will, does it not? It is because, as I said before, I think the current regulators are doing the best they can, but they haven't necessarily got the expertise, they haven't necessarily got the resources, and it's not necessarily within their competence to actually do this. As I said, AI not only says a lot about what you will be as a society, but it will shape what you will be as a society. And they are decisions which we must make through our democratic process. And that requires that policymakers re-engage with this, not only to sort of give it more oomph from an industry development point of view, but to ensure that what is there conforms with the values that we as a democratic society want. And you don't do that inside the halls of independent regulators. I'll go back to my old phrase, governments make policy, regulators implement policy. Well, you've given us a very thought-provoking look into the future of society and regulation with AI driving it. Thanks very much, Peter. Thank you, Moya. What a great interview. I mean, I've definitely watched too many AI sci-fi movies, and I have a sceptical brain too. Not about the potential, but I'm a bit sceptical about how close we actually are to realising that potential and to understanding and dealing with all the risks that can arise when you put an implant in your head, for example. Well, maybe you need a chip in your brain to give you an innovation mindset, Matt. Oh, that could be garbage in, garbage out. And will shoveling more data into the model get us to real intelligence? Well, we've seen that you do have to be really careful with the data that you feed into these AI systems. 
You do. And an extra problem might be that more of the data that's out there is going to be data that was generated by AI or influenced by AI and its existing biases. So it could get even harder to get the good uncontaminated data that we need. Yeah, but at the same time, there is some amazing stuff happening in the AI sphere right now. There is. And Peter and the team have also written a terrific paper about recent advances in AI-created art. And I've now spent some time down that rabbit hole, and it really does feel like magic. So this is where the AI has been trained on billions of artworks from across the internet. And now you can describe what you want to see and maybe the style you want to see it in, and the AI will do a pretty good job of extrapolating. Yeah, you can start with nothing, or you can start with a very rough sketch or another image. And together with your description, it'll come up with something. You could say, for example, two podcasters wearing headphones and hoodies as a Giacometti sculpture, mm. or in the style of German expressionist group De Blau Reiter, and it'll come up with something pretty much like our new Twitter profile picture and background. Oh, we're on Twitter. We are now. Um, you can check out at GT Comp Edge for the show notes, links to other stuff, and occasional experiments in AI-generated art. But on a serious front, there are concerns about AI-created art, including the fact that they're trained on mostly copyrighted images, and they can create images that are startlingly similar to the styles that living artists have worked their whole lives to develop. So how are we dealing with those issues? Uh, it looks like actually I've read that wrong. We're using Al-generated art. He's a summer clerk. He's really talented. Oh, good old Al. Well, that's a relief. I'm waiting for the AI referee trained on billions of football matches. Although I'm not sure who we'd get mad at then. Maybe we'd just rage against the machine. Anyway, you can find relevant links in the show notes, including on Twitter, apparently, and email us at edge at gtlaw.com.au. And we've got some great guests still to come, including Elizabeth Avery on developments in antitrust in the US, and an extremely special guest very soon. Mm. And if you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe, leave us a review, follow us on Twitter at gtcompedge, and tell your friends. Till next time, this was The Competitive Edge with Gilbert and Tobin.